0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You've probably heard the saying, the eyes are the window to the soul, but your eyes may also be a window to your overall
2: health. Diabetes, hypertension, and high cholesterol can all be detected in the eyes. And now, a new study finds that changes in the eye's blood vessels may predict future memory loss. On today's program, we'll learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll discuss how to treat muscle strains and ligament sprains.
1: And we'll hear from a recent Mayo Clinic School of Medicine graduate about life as a med student.
2: All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: As adults, we all know there's this list of things that we should have checked regularly, our weight, our blood pressure, our cholesterol. And you know, there's one more thing we should probably add to that list, and that is an eye exam.
2: Of course.
1: <laughs> Even if your vision isn't a problem, your eyes can be an early predictor of certain diseases or an indicator of some health problems.
2: Hmm. The retina, or the back of the eye, can give doctors a close-up view of your blood vessels and nerves without needing to be cut open. These blood vessels can show signs of diabetes and multiple sclerosis, just to name a few. A recent study published in the medical journal Neurology shows small changes in the blood vessels within our eyes at age 60 can also help predict memory loss or dementia in the next two decades. I'm sure I want it. to know. <laughs> <laughs> here to discuss is Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist Dr. James Garrity.
3: Welcome back to the program, Dr. Garrity. It's nice to see you again. Thank you. It's been a long time since we've been here, and we've got a lot of ground to cover. Oh, boy. <laughs> you've been around a while. How many uh, eye exams do you think you've done? Do you have any idea? Tens of thousands, I'm sure. Um, I guess don't even keep track. So, what? Uh, tell us about the eye exam. Uh, if you're going to do a general eye exam on an adult, what do you do? Well, just like any other examination, it's divided into components. The first component is just to listen to the story um, of, well, what's wrong with your vision? Do you have double vision? Do you have blurred vision? Do you have loss of vision? Because... Every response will generate a different type of a question. And then uh, by a series of probing questions, you can almost diagnose what a person's going to have just listening to the story.
1: So, uh, you know, I love that line. If you listen long enough, sooner or later the patient will
3: tell you what's wrong with Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Exactly. And uh, then uh, once you have an idea of what you suspect on the basis of the history then you can go do your examination to either confirm or refute some of your um, ideas. So when we do an eye exam, the things that we check are the vision. And we usually check the vision off in the distance and also at near. Sure. Because when you get older, um, people say that, well, I have to hold the material farther away. and that's, Arms are too short. Uh, that's right. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, That's a condition called presbyopia, and that's a normal aging process. You can almost diagnose that one over the phone. Mm. So that's one of the uh, things that we look for is just the vision at distance and at near. Then, depending on um, what... Other information you'd gather from the history, you you might check their their pupils. You know, you shine a light in their eye, and then you watch to see how the the pupil constricts with the eye. There are certain types of visual problems where the pupil would not constrict as vigorously when you shine the light at it. For example, um, you had mentioned MS earlier, and MS can sometimes present with an eye condition called optic neuritis. And when optic neuritis is present, um, your vision is blurry, it might hurt when you move your eye, uh, your color vision would be reduced on that side, and uh, the, the pupil wouldn't react uh, as well.
1: So optic neuritis, meaning that the nerve that supplies the eyeball is inflamed. Exactly. Itis means inflammation.
3: <clears throat> yes. And if you think of the optic nerve as being a, a wire, an electrical wire, uh, an optic neuritis would be a problem with the insulation on the wire, where now the the wire doesn't conduct the current or doesn't transmit the images as uh, intensely as it would normally. So, yes, yeah, an optic neuritis can be an indicator of. All right, and you know. what's next? Um, then you can check to see how the eye moves, uh, because there are certain eye conditions that would restrict the movement or. Uh, reduce the movement of the eyeball in certain directions. Um, Another, for example, uh, people who have thyroid eye involvement, their eye muscles get tight and restricted, and it will give them double vision just simply because that eye muscle restricts the movement Hmm. of the eye. Uh, You can also check the side vision, the peripheral vision. People who have had a stroke uh, might not see off to one side. There's uh, an interesting anecdote. Uh, One of our colleagues many, many, many years ago had a stroke involving the right side of his brain. So that would uh, cut off the visual field in his left peripheral vision. And he always kept getting into trouble because when he went to the restroom, you'd see women on the door, except he didn't see the W.O. He just saw the men. So he always went into the wrong bathroom on the basis of that (laughs) At least that's what he was saying. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the side vision, the way the eye moves. Then um, we can also use a special instrument called a slit lamp, which is like a microscope, and that will examine the front part of the eye. It magnifies it, and you see it in stereo. There are certain types of eye inflammation, that will show up in the cornea or the anterior chamber. You can also the, use... The cham- that's oh, the front chamber. Yeah, yeah. The, okay. um, the, the portion of the eye that's behind the cornea and in front of the iris is called the anterior chamber. So if somebody has an iritis, for example, that's where you would see some inflammation in that. We also use the slit lamp to look at the lens. And if the lens is not clear, we call that a cataract. There are many, many, many different types of cataracts, and they're located in different uh, positions within the lens.
1: All right, and then what's next? We aren't even inside the eyeball yet. No, and you thought this was easy.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Then the the next step would be to use an instrument called an ophthalmoscope to examine the retina. And um, you had uh, mentioned you can tell certain diseases by looking at the retina. The retina is the only place in the body where you can actually see blood vessels. And you can get an indicator of the neurologic health because the optic nerve and the retina are extensions of the brain. So you can infer certain brain conditions on the basis of how their retina and their blood vessels appear. Is that where
2: the uh, article that was in the neurology and the dementia aspect come in?
3: Exactly. And in that study, they looked at, uh, I think, approximately 12,000 patients And um, they did a baseline eye exam to um, examine for the presence of retinopathy, meaning uh, abnormalities on the retina, plus also the um, thickness or the constriction of the retinal arteries. And then uh, on the basis of that, they could imply the condition of the small blood vessels in the the brain. So Mm. this group... With about a thirty year follow up as I recall from reading the article, they stratified the people into the ones that had cognitive impairment and then correlated that against the uh, caliber of the uh, retinal vessels
1: so if the If the retinal vessels were small, that means that there was some disease in them they weren 't normal, and then that correlated with becoming demented
3: later on exactly and um, Blood vessels get small in response to uh, untreated hypertension, for example. And, um, in fact, uh, one of the old faculty members from Mayo Clinic helped design this uh, classification scheme for uh, hypertension. And what they would look for initially was just constriction of the blood vessels. And then they also looked at where the arteries and the veins crossed, And then they'd look for another thing called focal constrictions. And then finally, little hemorrhages on the retina itself. And then lastly, swelling of the optic nerve in association with untreated hypertension. Because back in the the 20s and 30s, there there weren't any medications for hypertension. So one could prognosticate on the basis of the eye exam, you know, whether or not they were in trouble or or not. Well, you are right.
1: We did have a lot to talk about. We are with ophthalmologist Dr. Jim Garrity. Time for a short break, but when we come back, we'll talk about some specific eye diseases, including cataracts.
2: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives, And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with Dr. James Garrity, Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist. We've learned about the eye exam from A to Z, front to back, and all that you can learn by looking inside the eyeball. So now let's... You have one well, before we go There to, was
2: one more thing I had ah, to ask please. about
3: that eye exam. How often should adults have an eye exam? Let me give you a long answer to a short question. Um, when should you get an eye exam in general? At, newborns, for example, um, have just a screening eye exam before they leave the hospital. And what the uh, uh, pediatrician or eye care provider does is it just shines a light at the eye. And what you expect to see is something that we call the red reflex. And uh, you also check to see if the eyes are are straight. Um, The red reflex is a normal um, response. And I know you've seen that on pictures before Mm -hmm. where you Mm -hmm. see the red eye. Where we get concerned, especially in a child, is where you've got a red reflex on one side and it's white on the other side. And that needs to be checked. Because the concern is that could be a tumor inside the eye called a retinoblastoma. Mm. Even in a baby? It, 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 typically in a baby. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes. Yeah, okay, that's a, so
2: um, when's your
3: next example? Well, oh, I
2: know he's going to stop off at childhood. Oh, uh, yeah. We, Don't think we're <laughs> going to get a short answer. But. Yeah,
3: that's right. <laughs> uh, usually before uh, school, you know, three, four years of age, because if crossed eyes are detected or if there's a big difference between the two eyes, that's when you'd want to address that, because what you're trying to prevent is a condition called amblyopia, which is commonly known as a lazy eye because lazy eyes can be treated if they're caught early enough and you can determine the cause. And people think (laughs) lazy eyes are is it a crossed eye,
2: but it's not necessarily. It could just be that the one eye is not sending information to the brain. That's
3: exactly right. And a, a classic situation where the eyes might not cross, at least initially, where the refractive error is almost zero in one eye, or slightly nearsighted, so things would be in focus. Then the other eye would be extremely farsighted. And what the brain does then is it ignores the image from the far-sighted eye Mm -hmm. because it's way out of focus. Mm -hmm. So um, that would be the purpose of that preschool exam. And then uh, the other time that you'd get an exam would be maybe in your uh, 30s and 40s when your arm's starting Mm -hmm. to get to be (laughs) too too short. And then once you hit your... late 50s and 60s, maybe every year or so, just routine screening with the caveat that if something doesn't seem right, get it checked. For instance, something like macular degeneration. Macular degeneration would be a little unusual at that age, but it's not unheard of. Um, But since you brought up the topic, uh, macular degeneration is, uh, I think, important to talk about because we often see people that are afraid. They've been told that they have macular degeneration and they're going to go blind. Uh, There are two types of blindness. One of them is legally blind, where the vision is recorded as 2200, which is the big E on the eye chart. And that's the type of of visual acuity that a person with macular degeneration would have. So when a person loses a macula, imagine that if you looked right at my nose, you'd see the top of my forehead, the bottom of my chin, and each ear, but then nothing in the middle. Mm -hmm. So with macular degeneration, your side vision, your walking around vision is always intact. So one of the best things that we can do is just provide some education for these macular degeneration patients that, no, you're not going to go blind. You might go legally blind, but you're not going to go completely blind. Oh, that's good, because you really don't have any great treatment for it. There's the dry type of macular degeneration, then there's the wet type. The dry type of macular degeneration, it just wears out. It undergoes what we call atrophy. That's the condition where they recommend all these uh, special vitamin supplements like the ared supplements. These, in theory, are supposed to decrease the rate of progression of the dry type of macular degeneration. About 10% of these dry types of macular degenerations will convert to the wet type. The wet type is where there's leakage of blood underneath the macula, And if you think of the retina and the macula as being the film in the camera, now you've got the macula gets blistered off and it doesn't work. So there's a a fairly sudden, typically over the course of a couple days, vision loss. And something that normally appears nice and straight, like the angle of a door, a door frame that we all know is nice and straight, all of a sudden now that appears bent and distorted. And that's a feature of this wet type of macular degeneration. When I was in training, there was no treatment for wet type. But now there are these anti-VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor compounds that can be injected into the eye. So if someone has wet type macular degeneration, they're probably getting these shots of uh, anti-VEGF in their eye. How about the dry one? Is there treatment for dry? Not yet, but the A-Reds vitamins slowed on the progression of the dry type. All right. You want to hit cataracts?
1: Sure. Pretty common problem. What, 500,000 people in the U.S. have a cataract every year? Or is Um, it even more?
3: I don't recall the exact number because uh, a cataract is kind of a moving target. There are many, many different types of cataracts. Uh, There's also some types that are congenital. And we talked about lazy eye briefly. A congenital cataract would be a cause of Mm. uh, amblyopia. And those are treated with surgery just like adult cataracts are. And what about glaucoma? Glaucoma is a situation where the pressure in the eye is high enough, typically, there's exceptions to that, where it injures the optic nerve. And it injures the optic nerve uh, in a particular pattern or fashion, where it, it makes the cup or the central part of the optic nerve makes it a little bit bigger at the expense of the axons of the optic nerve. So it cuts down your side vision first. But uh, glaucoma it typically is treated with drops to get the pressure down. And if that is not effective, one can then do a laser procedure. Um, and if that doesn't work, then one can do surgery. But there are a couple different types of glaucoma. There's the angle closure that's associated with red eye, pain. Um, That's not as common as the uh, open angle glaucoma. But the uh, angle closure glaucoma is initially treated with a a laser, typically, to um, put a little hole in the iris to let the fluid get through whereas the open-angle glaucoma, you uh, take drops to decrease the pressure in the eye.
1: Wow. You do have a lot to talk about. Oh, we, I mean, even, we even got more. We didn't know you were nearly this smart. Yeah, you knew I, so much. I, Dr. Jim Garrity, ophthalmologist the Mayo Clinic, we will have to have you back because there's lots of other topics we want to talk about. Thanks so much for being with us.
2: Well, wait. I won't leave. <laughs> well, we're going to go. Oh, okay. You <laughs> Just shut the lights off when you're done. <laughs> Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn how to treat muscle strains and ligament sprains.
1: And later on in the program, we'll hear from an award-winning Mayo Clinic medical
2: student. Want to hear and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Or check out more than 250 Mayo Clinic Radio segments, now available on YouTube. Coming
1: up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Maybe you've heard of this. It's called avocado hand, and fans of the fruit, both famous and not, are feeling the effects these days when they slice up their hands or fingers while trying to slice up the avocado. Dr. Sanj Kakar, a Mayo Clinic orthopedic hand surgeon, says he's seen an increase in hand injuries requiring surgery as a result of the rise in popularity of avocados. Jen Welper, an executive chef with the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program, says most of the injuries can be Avoided with four simple tips. First, make sure your knife is sharp. If it isn't, you'll have to use more force, which increases your chances of something going wrong. Number two, make sure the avocado is ripe. An unripe avocado will be much harder to cut. Number three, know the proper way to cut into the avocado. You want to sort of glide into it versus trying to chop it. Number four, taking the pit out. Be extra careful. Welper says other advice she can offer is how to slow down and take your time anytime you're cutting fruits or vegetables. And now let's talk about an issue often associated with the summertime, swimmer's itch. It's an itchy rash that can happen after swimming or wading outdoors. It's most common in freshwater lakes and ponds, but it sometimes happens in saltwater. Swimmer's itch is a rash usually caused by an allergic reaction to parasites that burrow into your skin while you're swimming or wading in warm water the parasites normally live in animals such as waterfowl humans aren't good hosts so the parasites soon die while they're still in your skin now swimmers itch is uncomfortable but it usually clears up on its own in a few days in the meantime you can control itching with over-the-counter or prescription medications if you get it these things could help don't scratch. Cover affected areas with a clean, wet washcloth. Soak in a bath sprinkled with Epsom salt, baking soda, or oatmeal. Apply a medicated cream to soothe the itch and inflammation. And to avoid it, one great thing you can do is rinse off after swimming. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
4: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Karthik Balakrishnan.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae. Sprains and
4: strains are common injuries that share similar signs and symptoms, but they involve different parts of your body. A sprain is a stretching or tearing of ligaments, and ligaments are the tough bands of fibrous tissue that connect two bones together in your joints. A strain is a stretching or tearing of a muscle or a tendon, and tendons are the fibrous cords of tissue that connect muscles to bones.
2: I don't like either one of them. Not not a bit. <laughs> Mild sprains and strains can be successfully treated at home, but more severe sprains and strains might require surgery to repair torn ligaments, muscles, or tendons. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Christopher Camp. Welcome to the program, Dr. Camp. It's great to meet you.
5: Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Great to meet you guys as well.
2: How can we tell if a sprain or a strain is severe enough to have to go into the doctor?
5: Sure. A couple of things. And In- we commonly see in patients too, they'll say, I knew something was wrong. And so I really think patient intuition is an extremely powerful thing. So usually patients have pretty good insight into it initially. So if there's any question, how do you you feel? Do you feel like this is something that may get better within a day or two? Most commonly it does. Occasionally it doesn't. And a lot of patients will know. And usually if it's not going to, there'll be some other hallmarks or signs. So Take a rotator cuff, for instance, one of the most common. Somebody has a mild sprain or strain of the rotator cuff, usually within a few days they'll be able to move their arm, pain's getting better. However, sometimes a more severe one, unable to lift the arm, severe pain, that's actually getting worse rather than better. So if it it looks like things are headed in the wrong direction, probably need to see somebody. Is one worse than the other, or should people be more worried about one than the other? Uh, Not necessarily. The vast majority of both sprains and strains can be treated without surgery, but again, a lot do require surgery. But I don't think one necessarily needs to be more worrisome or concerning than the other. And again, I think the same logic applies, too. So you kind of base on your symptoms, either one. So I don't think it's up to the patient to have to try to decide, oh no, is is this a ligamentous structure or a tendonous structure or a muscular structure? They don't really have to worry with that. I think it's more based on how their symptoms are.
2: What's the most common sprain? I imagine that it's an ankle, but is that the fact?
5: It really depends on the the activity level and the demographics of patients. Yes. So ankle sprains absolutely high on the list, and then it really kind of depends. So if we look at our kind of weekend warriors, maybe folks somewhere in the 50 to 70 year old age range, we see a lot of rotator cuff problems ah. there. In our younger patients, maybe in the 30- to 50-year-old range, we see a lot of knee issues there, so common knee sprains, patellar tendonitis or patellar tendon sprains, those are extremely common as well. So it really kind of depends on the age, activity level. In our higher-end athletes that are out there competing competitively, high school, professional sports, um, those those folks tend to have a lot of hamstring strains or, or larger muscle sprains as well.
2: Uh, I was gonna say, and then finally about the klutzes in the room, we get ankle sprains.
5: Yeah, yeah, I've been there too. But I've been I, there, yeah. but
2: it feels like it never. It was just a random sprain, but it feels like it never really healed the same way. I wish that I could go back in time and yeah. treat that sprained ankle differently than I did.
5: Sure, and I bet if you had an MRI now, there may be evidence of an old injury that you may have had. Mm-hmm five, 10, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. So e- even though a lot of these will heal on their own, they don't always heal completely normally, unfortunately. And that can be the case with or without surgery. So even sometimes after surgery, long-term, you can still see some evidence of prior injury there. So really the thought is we want, it, we want the sprain or strain to heal as best that it can. And then the re- the, really the goal of rehabilitation and therapy is to strengthen all of the muscles around the joint So even if that ligament or tendon is not doing its normal function, all of the muscles can kind of compensate for it and and help it out a little bit.
2: So is that the main mistake that people make when it comes to something that's been sprained is that they don't rehabilitate it correctly?
5: Correct. And I think one of the biggest things is oftentimes people, after having an injury, your attention is drawn to that area of the body. So people be really dedicated early on and do a lot of therapy and a lot of strengthening. But in reality, you probably had that injury because of some abnormal movement or some sort of weakness somewhere in your body. So you're going to continue to be predisposed and have an increased risk for those down the road unless you can correct those problems. So really, once you have an injury like that, if it's severe enough, it can be a new lifelong relationship you have with that joint that you always just kind of have to stay fit, keep it strong, keep it stable, and then be smart about your activity. So is there things that we can do to prevent these from happening? Absolutely. So I think the places we see folks get into the most trouble, really probably two areas. One is starting a new activity that you haven't done previously. And that that doesn't necessarily have to be a sport or a new thing in the gym. It can be just that you've been inside all winter, spring comes, and now you're outside in the yard and you decide you're going to you know, work for 10, 12 hours on a Saturday. So your body's not ready for that. You're not used to that. So for those type of activities, you just kind of be careful, ease into it, maybe start out, you know, don't do 12 hours of yard work on the first Saturday <laughs> of spring. You know, start, start out light, start out easy, and then kind of gradually get into it. Or go into the gym, maybe get in shape and get ready for it ahead of time. The other that we see are the overuse injuries. So a lot of people who are extremely motivated, probably more motivated than I am, exercise very religiously every day, and they tend to do one type of exercise every day. So we have a lot of folks that just love to run, and they run miles and miles and miles every single day, or the cyclist who loves to cycle every single day. Although the exercise is great, it, overuse can be a problem. So for those folks, I try to say, just mix it up. So mix in a few days of running, mix in some swimming, mix in some cycling. Find other ways to, to keep your body active and keep moving to avoid those overuse injuries.
2: Let's also add in strains here. How are those similar or different than a sprain?
5: Uh, Very similar in the terms of how they show up and how they present. Pain is the hallmark characteristic of all of them. Now, the pathophysiology is a little bit different, and the rehabilitation may be a little bit different. So the strains that involve muscles tend to require a little bit more therapy, take a little bit more time to heal. Sometimes you have to go slow early on because you can't do a lot of aggressive strengthening if the muscle itself is aggravated. So the presentation is usually pretty similar. However, the rehabilitation treatment may be slightly different depending on the exact location and what's involved. And which, which of these injuries are going to need surgery from an expert like yourself? Mm-hmm. So the vast majority of strains and sprains are treated without surgery initially. So we tend to want to do everything we can, give it time, rest, modify activities, physical therapy, those sort of things. And then those that continue to be a problem after non-operative treatment tend to be the ones that, that go to surgery. Probably the most classic example would be the rotator cuff. And sometimes we can tell early on, based on the severity of the injury, how likely they are to be successfully treated with without surgery and those that need surgery. That's probably the most common. But really the hallmark is they fail to get better with a very comprehensive course of non-operative management.
2: So- well, let's wrap this up with what should people do after they notice that they've got a sprain or a strain or... Uh, I imagine that there's an ice pack somewhere in there, there but is, yeah, uh, probably yeah. a little bit more detailed than that.
5: Sure, sure. <laughs> so I say it, uh, tip number one, stop. Whatever you're doing, don't keep doing it. Uh, we find commonly, yeah, I felt something pop in my shoulder, oh. so I kept going, and then I couldn't lift my arm. It, you know, it may, And maybe had they stopped the first time, maybe this would have been something small rather than something large. Give it a few days. Ice is fantastic. Anti-inflammatories are also a good idea. if Your physician says it's okay for you to take them. And I recommend rather than taking them intermittently kind of here and there once every few days, take them on a scheduled basis for a few days to see if you can kind of get ahead of the inflammation and get that to calm down. So really rest, ice, modify your activities, anti-inflammatories, and then just kind of be smart. And then slowly and gradually increase your activities after that.
4: Any new innovations in surgery for these things at all?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So... In, inside and outside of surgery, honestly. So, a lot of things that we're doing, that area kind of in between non operative treatment and surgery, kind of the whole regenerative medicine field is really exploding. So, we're really starting to find out which different types of treatments can we use things like PRP, platelet rich plasma, our stem cells, those sort of things. And we're really starting to figure some of these injuries are very amenable to those types of treatments, others aren't. So, we're still sorting out which is which. Uh, so, that's an area I think it's going to grow a lot. And hopefully, if we can continue to hone the indications for that, maybe we reduce the, the numbers that need surgery. And then for us on the surgical side of things, we're constantly trying to improve, uh, improving different surgical techniques, devices to fix these uh, tendons back to the bones, ligaments back to the bones, and also adding these biologic adjuncts to the surgery to try to improve the healing process and speed up the healing process if we can.
2: But not yet a time machine to go back and prevent my terrible... Unfortunately injury. not.
5: Oh. No, no.
2: All right. I'll keep waiting.
5: Okay. We've no been problem. talking
2: about strains and sprains with Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Christopher Camp. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Camp.
5: Thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. We're going to take a
4: short break. And when we come back, we'll meet an award-winning medical student studying right here at Mayo Clinic.
2: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
4: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Karthik Balakrishnan.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae. Recently,
4: fourth-year Mayo Medical School student Paul Statham was honored by the Minnesota Academy of Family Physicians with the 2018 Medical Student Leadership Award. According to Dr. Statham's mentor, Dr. Margaret Gill, his bedside ability and work ethic are, are an inspiring model to students and residents who work with him.
2: After graduating from the Mayo Clinic School of Medicine in May, he is now Dr. Paul Statham, and he's here in studio with us today to discuss that award and what life was like as a medical student here at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Statham. Thanks.
6: Uh, it feels really <laughs> weird, but thanks so much for having me.
2: I'm sure that your family is just loving it.
6: Yeah, uh, very proud of me and proud of everyone who went through Mayo and accomplishments that some of my classmates have had are just amazing.
2: Because you're from just up the road to Minneapolis. Yeah,
6: I was born and raised in Eden Prairie.
2: All right, and that's where you're going now.
6: Yep, I I matched into family medicine at North Memorial Family Medicine Residency, affiliated with the University of Minnesota in northern Minneapolis.
2: So did you always want to be a doctor growing up in Eden Prairie? Uh,
6: No, I, I don't know when it really started. No one in my family is in medicine, and I always thought I was going to be an astronaut because I thought that space was just amazing. But I think as I went through um, and learned more about being a physician and caring for other people and discovery, I mean, I think that's really what a lot of people go to medical school for is like the caring and discovery stuff. So that's, that's kind of what led me to where I was. Can you tell us a little bit about this leadership award? Yeah, so in medical school, I came in pretty interested in primary care just because it it seems to be in line with some of the things that I was passionate about. And so I got really involved with family medicine because that's kind of one of the the main specialties that is guaranteed to, to deliver primary care. And so with that, I got really involved with the Minnesota Academy of Family Physicians and took up some leadership roles there, um, student director and sat on the board of directors of the Minnesota Academy of Family Physicians. And through some of that work, um, I kind of started to learn what the policy and the education and the clinical aspect of primary care was like. And I think that's probably what lended up to me, getting nominated for the award and also kind of being a family medicine interest group leader here at the Mayo Clinic.
2: Having physicians who want to go into family medicine is is a great deal i've From other interviews that i 've heard, lots of people want to specialize and they don 't think about family medicine as an option.
6: yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely an option. I think that's one of the things the great things about the state of Minnesota is as a state, we produce some of the most family medicine physicians per like medical school oh. graduate and it's a lot largely is coming from the University of Minnesota, but there's two of us going into family medicine this year at the Mayo Clinic. I think it's a great specialty. I'm excited sure. to join the field.
2: So tell us about what uh, life is like at the at going to medical school at Mayo Clinic.
6: I it's hard to explain because it's just wonderful. I mean, it's very wonderful, and I um I think that one of the things that that sums up what life at being a medical student is like is the needs of the fa- patient come first, and you see that day in day out in your clinicals, but also. Mayo Clinic is a world-class education institution, and there were so many times during my education that I was asked not just, what do I think about this medical nugget of knowledge or, or what what have you, but how is this beneficial to your learning? And I think that when you are a medical student in that type of environment that's non-threatening and not malignant and very encouraging to making mistakes, that it actually builds a better physician. And for me, that, that was that was really important, one of the things that I – um, was excited about when I was coming here. I got that during my interview.
4: Is there like a, a moment maybe from that you recall from your medical school experience that really stands out to you as like a treasured kind of experience for you?
6: Um, one of the experiences that is kind of just burned in my mind that I bring up to other students when they're thinking about coming here is, so I'm not going into surgery and I'll never be a surgeon, but I feel like surgeons have a tremendous ability to care for patients in a very, very dire time. And some are more skilled at that than others. When I was during my general surgery uh, clerkship, I was working with uh, Dr. Travis McKenzie, who's an endocrine surgeon here. And he was actually honored at our graduation for being one of the Oh, educators cool. of the year. So he uh, was a good person to learn from. But he, I mean, we we had a patient that was extraordinarily nervous to have a surgery, a thyroid surgery, um, where one of the risks is vocal cord paralysis. So being able to, not to speak. And I just remember tra- Dr. McKenzie spending like 45 minutes with the patient and answering all of his concerns where he didn't have to do that. It wasn't going to change any of that. The outcomes and Dr. McKenzie's is a very skilled surgeon, but to that patient, it really made a difference. And I and I just remember seeing him do that and saying, like, "Wow, this is this." I don't know if this happens other places. I really hope it does, but um, that was one of the, the wonderful things.
2: Tell us about your work with the Somali Health Advisory Committee. <laughs>
6: yeah, that's um, kind
2: of a far-flung question, well, but that's it, <laughs> what I've got about you. Yeah, <laughs>
6: um, so. I think that as medical students, we, we do get involved in the clinic, but a lot of us also get involved in the Rochester community. And one of the things that I um, got involved with was the Somali community in Rochester, Minnesota, is a very vibrant Somali community. And um, I got to work with other Mayo Clinic employees from pretty much all backgrounds, very um, lab, laboratory tech, respiratory therapy nurses, and it's just a group of mainly Somali um, Rochester citizens and Mayo employees who care about Somali health. And so one of the things that we worked to do was do healthcare, health fairs at local mosques. So as a medical mm-hmm. student, I brought a little bit more medical knowledge. Um, we did career fairs for Somali students um, that um, go to the STEM, uh, Rochester STEM Academy um, to talk about medicine and science, but also like law enforcement and um, going into professional fields and things like that. And so um, being a part of that community was wonderful. I think it really connected me with the Rochester community, and it allowed me to get a little bit outside of the mail bubble, which was, I think, refreshing for me um, during medical school.
2: Finally, why don't you tell us about your residency? You've graduated <laughs> now. You're a doctor. What are you going to do next?
6: So I'll be going to North Memorial Health Hospital in North Minneapolis, um, Family medicine, three years.
2: Also, a large Somali population. Yeah,
6: so there's a there's a large Somali population. Um, the the main uh, there's a lot of African American mm-hmm. in that at that population as well. Um, and I'll be working. Uh, it's a University of Minnesota affiliated program. of seven other co residents, three years, um, all at that hospital. And there's a there's a clinic in North Minneapolis as well. Um, really excited. Family medicine. You know, learning a little bit about everything. Um, so. We'll see how it goes, but um, I'm just really excited to get started and continue to progress.
2: Very good. We've been talking with Dr. Paul. Doctor. <laughs> I, I really should emphasize that for you. Yeah, thank you. Dr. Paul Statum, the recipient of the Minnesota Academy of Family Physicians 2018 Medical Student Leadership Award. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Statham, and congratulations.
4: Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Best of luck as thank you head off to residency. <laughs> thank you. And that's our program for this week
2: tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm
0: Tracy McCrae.
1: Thanks for joining us.